I don't know if you ever read that classic by my friend C.S. Lewis, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a pretty popular children's book. In that book, you have these uh, four kids in England who've been uh, relocated because it's uh, the context of World War II, and so they've gotten them out of the city, and they're, they're out in the country. And um, as they're relocated, they find a magic wardrobe, takes them to a magic land. You know the story. But in this magic land, it's always winter. And one of the key characters there at the beginning is this uh, fawn, Mr. Tumnus, who's talking to Lucy, one of these, uh, one of these uh, daughters of Eve, as they're called in the book. And Tumnus says, it, it's winter in Narnia and has been forever so long. Always winter, never Christmas. Now listen, I didn't understand that until I moved to New Jersey, okay? Because <laughs> I didn't know what winter was growing up in California. Are you kidding me? The West Coast snow, it snows one day, it melts the next day, okay? They don't understand, all right? You think about that idea. Always winter, never Christmas. Always cold, nothing to look forward to. Always barren, never fruitful. Always dark, never any light. Of course, in the work, C.S. Lewis uses that imagery to depict the world broken by sin. That land was under curse, the curse of always winter and never Christmas. If all we ever see or experience is winter and barrenness and darkness, right, you, you'll be left, we would be left in a constant cycle of despair and discouragement where all we see is, oh, it's going to get colder. And guess what? There's not a countdown for the day when we get to open presents. There's not a countdown to that day of feasting and celebration. There's no looking forward to a thaw and eventual new growth and life. There's none of that. It's just, man, this is terrible, and I'm really not confident at all that it's going to get any better. But if that's how we're viewing our lives, we have missed the story of the Bible. We've missed the significance of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. If all we see is winter and never Christmas, we're not seeing life accurately. We're not seeing it informed by God's truth. Now, in the story, of course, something has to happen to break the curse. Particularly, someone has to come. And that's exactly what we've been reading about in Isaiah. We saw in Isaiah 7 how Isaiah talks about this virgin is going to conceive and and give birth to the son. And you will call his name Emmanuel because the son not only signifies that God is with us, but the son actually will be God with us. And we saw in chapter 9 that the son is given for us, to us, to accomplish salvation. And that son will be called the wonderful counselor, miracle-working counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince who makes peace. Isaiah has been giving this message in the 8th century BC in the kingdom of Judah to a faithless king named Ahaz, a king who refused in stubborn pride, refused to trust in God. And so Isaiah argues with him, showing him, listen, God is at work. God has promised deliverance. He is worthy of your trust. And Ahaz wasn't buying it, but maybe others would. I wonder this morning how you're doing. We're getting into winter, feeling it, especially today. We're really going to be feeling it tonight. I wonder, is your outlook, is your viewpoint of your life, when you look at your family, when you look at your circumstances, you look at your job, whatever, is it always winter, never Christmas? 
if it is, Isaiah 11 is given for you. Because in Isaiah 11, the prophet Isaiah talks not just about the fact that the Messiah is going to come, but he talks about what the Messiah's coming will produce for us. So let's look at these verses together. Look at Isaiah 11, chapter 1, and we'll, we'll see, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll see how this prophecy unfolds and, and what it means for us. It's the same context Isaiah talking to King Ahaz is 7 and 9, so we're in the same neighborhood as the last couple weeks. But watch chapter 11, verse 1. The prophet Isaiah announces, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, if you pause right here, we haven't, we didn't go through chapter 10. So let me catch you up to speed real quick. In chapter 10, God announces that he is not going to let his people suffer under Assyrian oppression. Yes, the Assyrians would come, they would conquer, but they weren't going to win the day and they weren't immune from God's judgment. They didn't have a free pass for that. And the image that he uses in chapter 10 at the very end of God judging Assyria is like Assyria is this huge tree, or really better, a forest, and God is going to chop down that tree. He's going to level that forest. So he's going to, he uses that imagery of a felled tree as a sign of God's judgment against Assyria. But when he announces that judgment, it also means that God will judge the unbelief in Israel. And so Ahaz will end up being a felled tree because he refuses to trust God. And Ahaz is a descendant of King David, and King David was supposed to be the, the forefather of the Messiah. And so there's a genuine question about the line of David, like it's the stump, like it's a tree that's been cut down, and it, there's just, it's dead. It looks like there's nothing there. The whole, maybe the whole forest has been leveled because of unbelief, and, and there's not much, there's just not much to talk about from that. Now you'll remember that King David's dad, his name was what? It was Jesse. And so Isaiah says, in chapter 11, verse 1, then a shoot, new growth, is going to spring up, will grow from the stump of Jesse. Boy, it doesn't look like much because of the unbelief of Ahaz. But God's doing something. It, didn't look, it doesn't look like much when you're thinking it's always winter, never Christmas. But the message of Isaiah 11 is a message of hope, even in the midst of apparent barrenness. Look at that stump. Jesse's line, line from David, it's, it's not doing so well. But there's going to be a, a, a new shoot of growth from it. He goes on. There's going to be a branch, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Some people think that this term branch, in Hebrew it's netzer, and I tell you that because some people think that perhaps a group of committed uh, Jewish believers, when they repopulated the land of Israel after the exile, they settled in this land in Galilee, in this little village, and they said, what should we call our village? Let's call it Netzareth, Nazareth, the place where this belief in the branch, maybe. Maybe. We don't know for sure. We do know that the title branch is used of the Messiah in Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 8. We know it's used as a title of the Messiah in the prophet Jeremiah, 150 years after Isaiah. So this title, the branch, is picked up for the one that's going to come from the seemingly dead stump of Jesse. The line of David has failed. They don't trust God. They aren't leading the people in trusting God. There's not much reason for a positive outlook. Always winter, never Christmas. And yet, the promise of the prophet is there will be one who comes from that line. There is one coming, the branch. And when that one comes, notice verse 1, the very end there. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Just so we're all clear, that doesn't happen in winter. (laughs) 
there will be growth. There will be life, spiritual life, spiritual fruit. There will be a work of God. And maybe this morning you've come in here to worship and you're struggling with this outlook on your circumstances. It doesn't look good, but don't, don't miss the fact that God has promised to do a work through his Messiah and that work will bear fruit. There is life. It can't be always winter. Praise the Lord. It can't be always winter and never Christmas. This branch will come and do this work, will bear fruit. Now, how does he get it done? It's really very interesting. Watch verse 2. Again, kind of drawing upon the, the biblical history in the Old Testament, Isaiah here talks about the Messiah and how the Messiah's work will be in perfect concert with the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord. Notice that's a capital S in your Bible. The Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. There's a play on words there in the original. The Spirit is going to settle on the Messiah. There, again, perfect uh, harmony here. What does that mean? Well, that means that it will be a spirit. It will result in a spirit of wisdom and understanding, meaning that what the Messiah does is perfectly informed by the Spirit of God's wisdom and understanding. We know this is actually a function of the Trinity, that it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together in the ministry of the Son. But here's, it's really interesting here, the focus being on wisdom and understanding, knowing strategically what to do, what decisions to make. Can I tell you that so often in our lives, we, we think it's a barren stump. We think it's always winter. We think there's nothing good going to happen because I don't know what to do. And praise God, when we, we don't know what to do, he does. He does. The Messiah has the Spirit, the Spirit of God, providing wisdom and understanding. Notice he goes on in verse 2. A spirit of counsel and strength. This isn't just knowing what to do. It's having the capacity to get it done, right? Some of us are planners. Some of us are doers here. The Messiah is both equipped by the Spirit of God to not only know what to do, but then to have the ability to do it. There's probably, this is probably wartime language again. That again, the Messiah knows how to get it done in battle. Like this is, it's going to happen. That he's going to actually lead his people spiritually and know how to navigate the spiritual battles that we face. Thirdly there in verse 2, a spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. These two terms are used together, actually, in several places in the Old Testament. Once in Proverbs, another place in Isaiah. The, the knowledge of God and the fear of God. The knowledge of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. It's not just that the Messiah lives and acts with knowledge of God. It's that the Messiah acts not just with knowledge, but with knowledge that leads to then, what? A right valuing of God. Now, Jesus can do this because he is the second person of the Trinity. But it's really interesting to think about the fact that there's a connection between this knowledge of who God is and then living, out, living in light of that knowledge. Fear of the Lord here is not a negative. It's not anxiety or trepidation over judgment. Fear of the Lord here is an appropriate awe for God in, in light of his power and his majesty and his transcendence. It's being rightfully blown away by the character of God. And Isaiah says, he's coming. And the spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. And you need to know what to do. He knows what to do. You need to know how to get it done. You need someone to get it done. He's the one to do that. And you know what? You want to know God and you want to live in genuine spiritual life. The Messiah is going to lead you in that. Watch verse 3. 
just the beginning of verse 3, just that first sentence there. His delight, the delight of the Messiah, will be in the fear of the Lord. His joy, right, his positivity, right, will be in response to reverence and awe for the character of God and who God is and what he's doing. And it's not just that the Messiah will be this, because the Messiah will be this, but remember the context. It's that Ahaz has failed. He's that, that stump, the, the stump of Jesse hasn't borne much fruit. That stump is not leading the people in this kind of living. Because when the stump, when the branch comes, when, when that shoot comes forth from that stump, it will bear fruit. That fruit is spiritual life. And so it's not just that the Messiah comes with the Spirit of God resting on him. The Messiah not only comes acting in the Spirit of God, but he also pours out the Spirit of God and leads the people in leading this kind of life. You see, here's the promise this morning in Isaiah 11. The branch breaks the curse. The branch breaks the curse. It can't be always winter. This isn't a losing game in the end. Tragedy and sin and mourning and suffering and despair and discouragement and all the things that we face living in a broken world, it cannot and it will not last because the branch breaks the curse. The Messiah here models true spiritual life as he will lead us. And by the way, if you're just wondering about the connection here between the description of the Messiah in Isaiah 11 and with Jesus, in uh, Luke chapter 4, well, we find Jesus being led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness, but we also find Luke saying that Jesus, when he returned to Galilee, he ministered in the power of the Spirit. He taught and he healed in the power of the Spirit. And maybe as Luke's writing that, the Spirit is bringing to mind to him Isaiah 11, that he's living out what Isaiah had prophesied 700 plus years before. You see, the Messiah models true spiritual life. He models genuine surrender to the Spirit of God. We don't understand all the dynamics of how this works, but just just work with me for a second here. When Jesus took on flesh and dwelled with us, he lived as a human. He was fully man and fully God. And we can't explain that mystery, but nonetheless, that is what the Scriptures tell us. And so as we think about what we see in the Scriptures about Jesus living, he he didn't just live with with a bulletproof attitude towards life, like some kind of Clark Kent character where it's like nothing fazed him. As he walked and lived in life, he walked in concert with the Spirit of God. And so Luke says the Spirit... Spirit led him into the wilderness. So Jesus walked with the Spirit into the wilderness and followed the Spirit's lead. And when Jesus ministers in Galilee, Luke says he did it in the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit equipped Jesus. Some scholars think, and I would be inclined to agree with them, that Jesus did not have constant awareness of all of his uh, knowledge of, of all time, that the Spirit gave him instances of knowledge of what other people were thinking, for example, or what was going to happen in the future when he needed it. And maybe that part of what he accepted in taking on flesh was temporary limitation of that knowledge to allow the Spirit to work. Now, we can't argue that for sure, but I'm just telling you, one way or another, the Son walked in concert with the Spirit and the Father in fulfilling the mission of redemption. Why? He does that to lead us to walk in the same way. The tragedy of the stump of Jesse, the tragedy of Ahaz was, it wasn't just Ahaz not believing. Ahaz was leading the people of Judah in unbelief. You know what you and I need? We need someone we can follow. Someone we can follow who's trustworthy, who can actually show us what we're made to do. And don't miss it here. We were made for spirit-led living. We were made for spirit-led living. We were made to be indwelled by the Spirit of God and to follow the Spirit of God in our decision-making. 
Sometimes we end up in tough spots because we've made sinful choices. And if you just had a moment of reflection, you might be able to acknowledge and just say, you know what? Yeah, actually, the fact is I'm in a tough spot because I didn't follow the Spirit of God in that decision. I went my own way. I went another way. And the branch, what the branch does is the branch break, breaks the curse and actually facilitates for us spirit-led leaving. And he, he shows us what it looks like, but he also makes it possible for us to live that way. More on that in a minute. The fact is, though, when the branch comes, he breaks the curse, and so there, there is fruit. Did you know we are the fruit? We are the fruit of the branch's ministry. When, when God calls us out of darkness into light, when he shines the light of the gospel in our hearts, when we go from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ, when that miracle happens and you believe the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be a part of the family of God, when that happens, we are the fruit of the branch's ministry. And we are called to follow him. You read about the Messiah having the spirit of the Lord providing you know, uh, wisdom and insight and counsel and strength and and knowledge and fear of the Lord, and you're thinking, I want that. We were made for that. Jesus came to provide it for us. Sons and daughters of Eve, uh, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, redeemed to know and to fear God. Now, I just want to revisit that connection between knowing God and fearing God this morning just for a minute before we get on to the next verses, because it's important. Because some of us lean maybe more towards knowing God than fearing God. These are my theologians, right? We're, we're big on knowing about God, right? But this is not talking about knowing about God. It's not talking about just having facts amassed about God. It's not about passing exams and graduating from seminaries and things like that. Isaiah here is talking about actual intimate knowledge of God, relational knowledge of God. Now, you have to know about God to be in relationship with God. So there's, there is a definite part of the Christian life that is growing in our knowledge of God. That's why we need the Bible. We need to know more about who God is, right? We need that. But if all we are ever doing is growing in knowing facts about God, like memorizing the stats on the back of his baseball card. Have you ever seen God's baseball card? There's a lot of stats on the back, FYI. Like, you know, like that, like that's it. Like, oh, I just know all these stats, right? There are, sadly, tragically, there are people who have an expertise, who have PhDs in Old and New Testament, who know lots of stats about God, who have no relationship with God, and they don't fear God. So knowledge alone is not what we're talking about here. Then, then there's the fear of God. Well, we're, we're talking here about awe. We're talking about that, that, uh, that just being in the presence, you know, imagining yourself in the presence of God and feeling that sense of, of incredulation and just being blown away by the majesty of God, being rightly, you know, rightly assessing his power, his eternal power that we can't fathom and going, yes, I need to respect God. I need to be blown away by who God is. In the old sense of the word awesome, he is awesome, right? And so I should respond with awe because he is awesome. And some of us are really passionate about that experiential response to God, about being an awesome of who he is, that spiritual experience. And yet we don't have a lot of time for adding new information about God. We just want the experience. We don't want the data. Listen, that stuff just slows me down. I want to ride the wave. I want the emotion. I want the passion, right? It is not a mistake that we have these two terms linked together here for us. And again, this is not the only place where these terms are linked, but here they're linked. Because we were made to delight in the knowledge of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord. We were made to grow in our knowledge of who God is, but that knowledge is meant to fuel passion for him. 
and awe and reverence in light of his character. I wonder if you have a healthy recognition of the power, the righteousness, and the majesty of God. And that fear does not, it, that is not the opposite of love of God. In fact, that is a foundational building block in love for God, is seeing him for who he is. The Messiah, the Messiah leads us to that conclusion of being passionate for who God is. Now, maybe you would confess this morning, I know a lot about God, but I'm not so sure I'm very passionate for God. Or you might say this morning, I'm really passionate for God, but I'm not sure I've learned something, anything new about God in 10 years. There's this opportunity here for us to follow the Messiah in that spirit-led living where we grow in the knowledge, in the fear of the Lord. Now, how does that relate to what the branch is going to actually do? Well, let's pick it up in verse 3, okay? So he, he goes on to talk about what the branch is going to do. Again, we already covered the first part here. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord, in that passion for God. But he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. And he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. We just pause there before we get to verse 5. So here the king, the Messiah, is doing what kings are supposed to do. He's reigning. Okay, so there is life out of the stump of Jesse. Now, okay, there is that, that Davidic king who's the Messiah, and he will reign. But what will his reign be like? Because frankly, we've had a lot of excitement about politicians in the past, and it hasn't exactly borne a lot of fruit. Where you get really excited about somebody being in a position of power and authority, and then they kind of blow it. So here, what's the deal with the Messiah? Well, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. He can't be fooled. He's got my vote. He can't be fooled. He can't be manipulated. Here, the context is the, the king making decisions and people coming and pleading their cases before him. So the king in ancient and Eastern cultures also function, function like the judge, right, in many cases. And so he's the king, he's the judge. And so they, they come and, boy, they cry and they tell their stories and it's hard to know what the facts are. And human judges are limited by what they perceive. They're limited by what they can see and hear and how their minds process that information. They're limited by CSI, by crime scene investigation. That's all they have is the evidence, right? But this Messiah has something greater than just his own perception. He has the Spirit of God. And so here he says he's not going to just execute by what he sees and hears. No, verse 6, or excuse me, verse 4, but he will judge the poor how? Righteously. You know, the, the poor, especially in ancient cultures, I'm not sure much has changed today, they have a hard time getting a fair take because on the one hand, because of desperation, often they will attempt to manipulate the system. On the other hand, often they are the ones manipulated by others. And you need a wise judge to be able to sift through that and figure out what's really going on here. And the Messiah will judge the poor righteously. The emphasis here is on not making sure that the poor are protected and they're not taken advantage of by the rich. He says, and he will execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He's going to see it right and he's going to render the right verdict. And verdict is what's going on in verse 4 with the strike the land with the scepter from his mouth. That's like when he, he says the verdict. Like guilty, innocent, whatever, right? This is, that's the sentence. Like he's going to strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. And what will that sentence be? Well, he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Really, it's actually literally with the spirit from his, the breath from his lips. It's the same word as the spirit from verse 2. He's, he's going to enact the will of God 
in judging the wicked. I can tell you, a big part of the reason why it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas is because of the wickedness in our world. It's because of sin. The sin that we do to each other. And here, Isaiah says the Messiah solves that. He, he will judge perfectly. Note verse 5. Who can judge perfectly? Well, this one, because watch. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. I noticed some of these, uh, these young uh, thespians up here had a had problem keeping their, uh, their outfits on, okay? And the, the, the reality is there were insufficient beltage, right? They didn't have enough. Because the belt keeps, you, keeps your personhood intact. It keeps the clothes. You're ready. Like, the idea is that you, you, you're ready to go. You're ready to act out. It's foundational to, you, like, your clothing is now a part of you. You are now ready to act. What is foundational to the character of the Messiah? Righteousness and faithfulness. Never takes it off. Always ready for battle. Righteousness in that he always does what is right. Faithfulness in that he is always trustworthy. And yeah, it might feel like it's always winter, but can I tell you that the Messiah is right and righteous, and he is trustworthy and faithful. And Isaiah says, don't look to Ahaz, but look to the branch, because the branch will break the curse. How? He brings true justice. The branch breaks the curse because he brings true justice. Again, we could maybe go to some of the other passages in the Old Testament where the title branch is used in Zechariah 3 or Jeremiah uh, 23 or 33. And in those passages, you have a a focus on righteousness, that the Messiah is going to lead the people in executing righteous judgment. He will be a trustworthy ruler. He will set wrongs right. So again, he is righteous. He does what is right. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. But do you believe he is righteous? But do you believe he is trustworthy? If you don't, it's not looking good looking at that stump. But if, if you believe the branch is righteous and is faithful, well, that changes your perspective. You see, there's a tension here as we're reading this, and maybe you're with me, right? We're reading this, and Isaiah's prophesying. He's talking about these glory days where all the judgments are going to be done right, and Jesus is actively reigning on earth, and that's it. And like all the, you know, there's no wrong anymore because he's dealt with all the wrong and rendered the verdict and all of that. We're like going, yeah, that sounds really great, <laughs> but that's not the reality in New Jersey right now. It sounds good, but we're not there yet. But a passage like this, right, it, it recognizes that we are in the in-between. We're in the already not yet because the Messiah has come. The promised one of Isaiah 11 has come. We've been celebrating his birth this time of year. He was born. But the fact is he has not fully implemented his kingdom yet. So we're in a little bit of an awkward spot. We're in the, we're called the teenage years of the church where we're just we're kind of like trying to figure out what does this look like? How do we, how do we kind of grow into our legs here and following him and trusting him? And we must, I think it's really important in a passage like this, we must acknowledge that right now injustice is still a thing. That we still live in a world because Jesus has not come back yet. He has not fully implemented his reign. We still live in a world where verdicts can be wrong where systems can be manipulated, where judges can and will take bribes. And sometimes, you know, in a recognition uh, to look to the future of what Jesus will do, right, we almost like close our eyes to the reality around us. And I just want to encourage you that that's, 
That's not really a healthy biblical way to process our, our lives. Isaiah wants you to look at the injustice, the real injustice. Okay, I mean, when it's, when it's real, right, to look at that real injustice and call it what it is. That is wrong, and that needs a righteous ruler to fix it, right? That, that there's honoring God by speaking the truth about injustice in our world. You know, the church has been in an awkward spot because so many people and powerful people outside of the church have grabbed onto this, this idea of justice and they've taught on it, and they've written on it, and it's been from a faulty perspective, I would say, from a Christless perspective. So there's a lot of problem with that. But the fact is, Christians should be more about real justice than anyone else in the world. Because we know the just one. Because, well, his belt is righteousness and faithfulness. And yes, his, one day, yes, true justice will come. But because that day is not here yet, we don't just go, oh, well, I guess we'll just deal, you know? Like, that's not going to help us. So we need to acknowledge injustice when we see it, which means we agree with God. Let's agree with God. When it's a faulty verdict, it's a faulty verdict. When the guilty go free, it's not good. And sometimes we can't tell. And that's okay to acknowledge that we can't tell. And sometimes all we have to say is, man, it's just, that is a terrible situation that, that crime was committed. And we can suffer with those who are suffering and mourn with those who mourn and pray for God's wisdom for our leaders. Which then might also lead to, in the meantime, taking active steps to change where we can. So, listen, it, it is appropriate for us when we see injustice to the degree that we can do something about it. We should do something about it. But, ultimately, what Isaiah 11 tells us is that there is only one lasting solution to the problem of injustice in our world. And it's Jesus. It's the branch. So yes, even as we seek to make improvements in our world and make better decisions and set up better systems and all of that, right, we have to acknowledge that, you know, inevitably, that's not going to ultimately solve the problem. We can't fix it all, but we worship the one who can. And we worship the one who will. And that's how we know it can't be always winter. That's how we know there will be an end to the cycle of suffering, the cycle of abuse, the cycle of injustice. The branch breaks the curse because he brings true justice. And I got to tell you, we might think of that in corporate terms, like in big pictures and systems and people groups. But most of the time, the injustice we're wrestling with, it's like the personal injustice where people are wronging us and we're experiencing sin in the world. And we've been abused. We've witnessed abuse. And now we're talking about this is where the rubber really meets the road. And if you've experienced that, that, that situation of you've experienced abuse, you've been sinned against, you've been a victim of someone else's bad decisions, right? All of that. It is hard sometimes to see that the winter will end because it's a dark place. But you got to know that there's a branch coming out of that stump, that the Messiah, the Spirit of God rests on him and he can and will get it done. And his belt is righteousness, and his belt is faithfulness. He does what is right. He is trustworthy. And so to look to him in faith, right, is the response that we need when we're feeling the reality of the brokenness of our world. Justice brings something we all ultimately want. Peace and prosperity. Watch verse 6, okay? Verse 6. Again, talking about, okay, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah will reign. He's going to render just verdicts and deal with all the wrongdoing. Absolutely. So then what? Verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. Pause right there. Listen, I've been to Animal Kingdom down in Florida. 
I've been to my fair share of zoos, uh, sketchy zoos in North Jersey that will remain nameless. Uh, here's the deal. You don't often see the wolf enclosure combined with the lamb display. We don't put the wolves in with the petting zoo. Okay? Wink, wink. There's a, you know, we know why. Because wolves eat lambs! Just in case you don't know. All right, I, spoiler alert, I gave it away. Wolves eat lambs. They're carnivores. The lambs are prey. The wolves are the predators. That's the deal. This picture, and what he does in these three verses, Isaiah gives a picture. It's a figurative image to show the peace and prosperity that will be on all the earth in all relationships. He's talking about how it's going to change us and the dynamic that we experience socially. And this is what he says. No more hunting. No more predators, no more prey. He's not talking about animals here. No more predators, no more prey. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat. Same thing. The calf, the young lion, a young lion, the fatted calf, the calf with a lot of meat on it, they'll be together. And not only that, a child will lead them. Lead them. Lead the lion, the young lion, and the fatted calf, and the wolf, and the goat, and the leopard, right? And the, and the lamb. It's like, he's the, you got a little child. Lead them. They can't even walk off stage without falling over. <laughs> and they're going to lead these dangerous animals. Now, you've heard that a child will lead them. We've heard that sung in Christmas songs as a, a, a prophecy of the fact that it will be the Messiah that will do that. That's not actually quite accurate. This is not about the Messiah being the child that will lead them. This is about the results of the Messiah's work. The Messiah will be born. The Messiah will come. The Messiah will reign. The Messiah is going to solve the problem. And as a result of that, little kids will be able to lead lions and leopards and wolves and lambs and cattle in a petting zoo and walk them around in a circle. Actually fulfilling Genesis 1.28. God created us to have dominion over the earth. Then the child will be able to do that because the curse will be what? broken watch verse 7 the same idea the cow and the bear will graze their young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle we're talking about again that the predators aren't attacking prey there is peace and prosperity here that's the imagery in fact it's so good this next one makes me very uncomfortable right verse 8 An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. If you know me at all, you know I agree with Indiana Jones' theology of snakes, okay? Snakes are no bueno. It is biblical. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, okay? The serpent deceived us. Everything about snakes is wicked. There 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 was a school event here this week with snakes in the building, and I said, if one of those snakes gets out, that's it. That's it. It's done. The whole thing. We're just canceling it all. Because I don't believe in snakes. Because snakes bite you and they carry poison and the serpent's a deceiver and a liar. And some of you moms, and I'm just thinking about moms that like sit there at the playground and they watch their kids play. And I know there are different levels of moms. Like some moms are like, it's cool, they have knives, no big deal. And other moms are like, no, they're walking, like careful, like make sure there's pillows around them in case, you know, like, so there's different, you know, whatever. You're telling me if you're a mom and your little baby crawls over there and you know there's a cobra pit and the little baby's like, oh, my rock fell down the pit. Let me reach my hand down and see what's in there. That's the imagery here. You should go, they shouldn't. But they can. Because what the Messiah will do is break the curse. 
so you don't have to worry about snakes anymore. He goes on, verse 9. They will not harm or destroy each other, meaning the snakes, destroying children, on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. He's talking about a spiritual reality here. And he says this, no more predators, no more prey, no more danger from snakes. Why? Because the snake has been defeated. You see, the branch breaks the curse. How? Well, if we continued reading in Isaiah, we would find out that the branch, the Messiah, as he comes, he will come with righteousness and faithfulness, but he will also come as a servant. And he will come and he will He will minister in the power of the Spirit. He will teach and he will heal. But ultimately, that servant, he will die. And when Jesus the Messiah died, what did he do? He died paying the penalty for our sin because we listened to the serpent. And when he died, he also breaks the power of the serpent and his deception over us. And when he rose from the dead, he conquers death, the ultimate consequence from the decision to sin and follow the serpent. You see, the branch breaks the curse. He brings peace and prosperity. How does he do it? He does it by defeating the serpent. The branch breaks the curse. He brings peace and prosperity by defeating the serpent. It's the reversal of Genesis 3.15, where instead of the descendant of the woman and the descendant of the snake being in conflict, or the descendant of the woman and the snake being in conflict, now infants can play next to cobra pits, and it's no big deal because the curse has been broken. Why? Because the Messiah died for our sins and rose from the dead. This reality of no more predators, no more prey, of peace and prosperity, of joy and happiness, that reality, it will come to pass. It's not that it might come to pass. It will come to pass. We've received the first installment of it in Jesus' first advent, and we look forward to his second coming when it will all be finally completed. But in the meantime, you will be tempted to believe that it will always be winter and never Christmas. Fight that despair. Fight that darkness. And there are going to be days when we see horrible expressions of wickedness and evil. We'll see it in our culture. We'll see it in our towns. We'll even see it in ourselves sometimes. We have to call it what it is. But when we see that, don't despair. Don't don't buy the lie of the serpent. He's still trying to convince you that the Messiah never came in the first place. He's still trying to tell you that he's not worthy of your trust. Yeah, the the stump of Jesse might not look like much back when Ahaz was king. But there was a greater king coming. Listen, it might be winter, but Christmas is next week. (laughs) It's coming. And and that's the good news that you need. I wonder this morning, where are you looking for peace Where are you thinking, if I just had this, if I just had that possession, if I just had that, you know, house, if I just had that job, that spouse, that group of friends, whatever. If you're looking for peace outside of Christ, you'll never find it. You'll always find people or things that will offer you peace, that will say, that will promise it. But I tell you what, there's only one whose belt is righteousness and faithfulness. There's only one who can lead us, that spirit-led living, 
Maybe you're here this morning and, you know, the, the, the toddler playing by the cobra pit, it, it's an expression of a time when you should be afraid. And maybe you're here and you're deathly afraid. You're afraid of getting sick. You're afraid of financial ruin. You're afraid of what's going to happen with our government and politics in our country. You're afraid of, of this, that, and the other. What's going to happen with your kids? You're afraid of what's going to happen with your grades or what's going to happen with your job. But you need to know that because of the Messiah, you don't have to be afraid. That ultimately, all that danger will be removed. And you know what? You can just sit there and relax while the kids play in the cobra pit. I can't believe I'm saying it, but there it is. Why? It's because of the branch. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've solved it or we've fixed it. But because he came. I asked the question this morning, what's your big what if that's bugging you? Well, what if? What if? What if? And you don't don't need to ask what if when it comes to the Messiah. You need to ask, what did he do? What has happened to change my circumstances? It's easy to have a negative outlook when we see sin around us and in us. But these promises of the Messiah and Isaiah, especially Isaiah 11, they call us to trust in him because the branch will break the curse. Some of us are old enough to remember this, but back in May uh, of 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. You remember this out in Washington State? That thing blew up. Man, it was crazy. It, it wiped out the whole region in an instant. And there was a whole forest there. They call it an old-growth forest that was blown away. It looked like somebody just took a snowblower and just went down the side of the mountain and, and just, you know, just ch- all the trees just pushed down and out of the way and all that. I mean, it was crazy. The, there was a lake there. The lake was uh, totally changed forever. All those trees ended up in the lake. Uh, what was a beautiful forest ended up looking like a barren wasteland. And the initial responses were very interesting because uh, even scientists, biologists, were looking at the, the, the devastation. It looked like the surface of the moon after the thing went off. And they were like, it's going to take millions of years. That's what they said. It's going to take millions of years for this to recover. And it's never, like, they were like, it's over. The stump is done. Like, that's it. The forest has been, fell- like, it is, it, that is it. They, well, they were like, it's always winter here. Like, it's never going to. But you know what? It wasn't too long before, surprisingly to some, they saw growth. And they started doing these studies. This is, about, this is 10 years after. They started, the, the growth is coming back faster than they thought. And they're studying. And you know what the secret of the growth was? It was gophers. I kid you not. Go, these gophers were, were going around digging these tunnels, and the tunnels were causing the earth to be moved in such a way that seeds that were blowing across could catch in the dirt. And then there were elk. The elk were walking through. They were pretty sturdy. They were, they had, some of them had survived. And they were walking through. They would step on these gopher holes, and they would push the seeds down to the soil, right? And, and then there were these leftover holes where instead of it being gopher hole, now it was just a hole in the ground, and these frogs were coming and living in these holes. And all of a sudden, out of this barren wasteland, it looked like nothing was going to happen. All of a sudden, you had new life springing up. And all these scientists and biologists are scratching their heads. They're going, we have, to, we have to write PhDs. We have to figure out what, you did do the research. It's going to take years for us. And all these theologians are going, bro, Isaiah 11. Like, what, what are you talking about? It looks barren, but God is at work. I think there's a lesson for us in that natural so-called disaster. It looked like all there was was death on the side of that volcano. 
but there was life. You know, you're looking to human leaders, you're looking to politicians, you're looking to money, you're looking to the job or whatever to find your, your meaning and to find that peace. You're never going to find it. They are just stumps. But when it comes to the stump of Jesse, there is the branch. And the branch changes everything. He is the one who broke the curse. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's brought life where there was only death. And that is reason for us to celebrate his coming. The question is, are you celebrating for the right reasons? Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us as we do so. Lord, we thank you for these, these words in Isaiah 11, this prophecy, Lord, that talks about really the end result of what you will bring to pass on the new earth because of your ministry. And Lord, some days, if we were honest, we just have a hard time seeing it. We're struggling under the weight of our sin and wickedness, the weight of others' sin and wickedness. And Lord, we thank you for this encouragement that although the stump of Jesse didn't look like much, Lord, that from that stump, you were born. And the Spirit, Lord, we praise you for working with the Son in conjunction with the Father to affect this ministry. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for dying for our sins and rising from the dead. And we praise you that righteousness and faithfulness is your belt. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you implement true justice on this entire planet. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to have faith. Help us when we feel like it's always winter, never Christmas. Help us to look to you and to see what your first coming means about your second coming. And Lord, in the meantime, we, help, we pray that you would help us to fight despair and discouragement. Lord, to call injustice what it is, to repent of our sin, to never do so in a way, Lord, that we think we're earning your favor, but to recognize that, Lord Jesus, you have come to rescue us simply by your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that we have genuine hope because the branch breaks the curse. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the branch this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.